Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of God. If you've been with us for the last uh, several weeks, we started a new series on uh, just to bring us into the Lent season. And um, <clears throat> during this season, it's really a time of spiritual renewal and spiritual growth. And we're focusing on the character of Jesus. Because what better way to understand the gospel than to learn about the character of Jesus? And we're seeing this, we're learning this through the gospel according to John in the New Testament. And this passage, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, you'd notice that it says that the earliest manuscripts didn't have this in the gospel according to John. Most likely, um, a, lot of, a lot of commentators and scholars say that this passage came from, the, came from Luke. Um, and, uh, but regardless, we know that it is in Scripture, it has been validated as a part of God's word, and it teaches us three incredible things about the character of Jesus. First, the patience of Jesus. Second, the poise of Jesus. Lastly, the pardon of Jesus, right? Three Ps, easy to remember, right? We have patience, the poise, and the pardon of Jesus. First, we're going to look at the patience of Jesus, and uh, we notice that in verse 2, Jesus is teaching in a temple. When these teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they, they brought in this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And they ask him, what do you say about this woman? Is this woman? Should this woman live? What do you say about her? Two times, twice, it says that the, the text says that the woman was caught in the act. We see that in verses 3 and 4. And it's because in the Mosaic law, adultery is punishable by death. It's a capital crime. Adultery was a capital crime. Now notice, they didn't ask Jesus if he thought that the woman was guilty. The guilt was proven. The guilt was evident. This woman had absolutely no defense. In verse 5, they were asking Jesus about the penalty. What should this woman receive? Now, we're going to take a step back here. The law is extremely just, very just, but it's also nuanced. And the law was very careful, very gracious when it comes to doling out capital punishment. Today, much of our criminal proceedings, our criminal justice system is based around the probability of evidence, the probability of guilt. But in ancient times, laws around evidence were much more stringent, much more strict. So in order to convict somebody of adultery, you needed two witnesses to actually see the sexual act taking place. 
And so as a result, almost nobody uh, ever got convicted. Almost nobody was executed. But this woman was caught. She was caught in the act. The law says you have to execute her. And so what they asked Jesus, very simple question, what do you say? It's a brilliant trap because up until this point, Jesus has been teaching about compassion. He's been teaching about grace. But what about justice, they're asking? What about the law, they're asking? The teachers and the Pharisees, they're looking for a way to trap Jesus. They're looking for a way to accuse Jesus. And so, uh, really, what's going on here, uh, this woman is a tool. Verse 6, we see that she was really being used as a trap to accuse him. She was being used as a a trap to to, uh, lure Jesus into um, uh, diminishing his character. Now, what's the trap? On one hand, if... Jesus pardons the woman. He's trampling on the law. He's trampling on justice, the justice of God, because she was caught in the act, and the law says she's defenseless. She needs to be executed. But if Jesus says, let's abide by the law, let's execute this woman, he tramples on grace. It proves that he's not for the outcast. Up until this point, he's been for the outcast. It proves that he's not uh, for women, Women had no rights in those days, but Jesus, so compassionate towards women, and yet now it proves that he's not for women, that he's not compassionate, that he's not gracious. All this teaching about about grace is is really fake. It's a sham. And so it would disprove that Jesus is the Messiah. Either he's going to disregard the woman or he's going to disregard the law, but you can't uphold both the woman and the law, you see. Either he's just and he's going to trample on grace, And when you do, then what's the result? The result is they're going to throw stones. You're going to be hurling stones. You're going to be executing people. When you're you're trampling on grace, you're going to, uh, at the least, you're going to disregard the person's reputation. You're going to disregard their character. You're going to disregard, you're going to trample on their social standing. Or he's going to say, let's be gracious to this woman. And then he tramples on the justice of God. He tramples on the law. And so he disregards obedience. But one thing's for sure is, You can't uphold the justice of God and the grace of God, right? You can't uphold uh, the law on one hand and compassion on the other hand, right? And so if you deny just one aspect of Jesus' claims, one aspect of Jesus' character, you disprove Jesus. You disprove everything. It's a perfect trap. How does he respond? How does Jesus respond? The teachers, they bring this woman in. They make, I mean, it's cruel. They make her stand naked, and she was caught in the act. So they make her stand probably naked in front of everyone. Even, even before they hurled a single stone at this woman, they destroyed her dignity. They destroyed her character, his repu- her reputation. Throughout history, we've seen religions being so cruel to women. And this is no different. You see this. But look at Jesus. Even though he's morally above her, even though she's morally beneath him, he doesn't treat her as morally beneath him. In fact, in verses 7 to 9, he advocates for her. In verses 10 to 11, he's gentle with her. That's profoundly progressive, even in those ancient times, because women had absolutely no rights. You mean, in fact, a woman's testimony in court, even if she was an eyewitness to something, never stood in the courts, you see. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, how does Jesus treat Judas? Judas is the betrayer. Judas is the one who betrayed him. He washes his feet, and he feeds him. 
He feeds Judas. And the disciples ask, who, he, he predicts that someone's going to betray him. And the disciples ask, who? Who is the one that's going to betray you? And it says that, the text says that he took this piece of bread, dipped it, gives it to Judas. And we like to read that and we think, oh, it's some sort of code language. It's not because the text says that disciples, they had no idea. Even after Jesus did that, they had no idea who the person was that was going to betray him. You know what Jesus was doing? Knowing that Judas was going to betray him, he's feeding him. In ancient times, a meal, a meal, to invite someone to a meal and to feed that person was an act of intimacy. Tremendous. You only did that to your closest friends. And mainly what he's saying is, I know you're going to betray me. In fact, he says, what you're about to do, do it quickly. And yet he feeds him. That was the last act, the last true act before he was arrested. You see that? Tremendous grace. In this passage, he could have wiped out the teachers. He could have wiped out the woman. But does he do that? He doesn't. He doesn't do that. Look at the gentleness of Jesus. Look at the patience of Jesus. Look at the humility of Jesus. How do we act? You know what we do? We throw stones. That's our, that's our impulse. Immediately, we like to throw stones. We like to gossip. We're very duplicitous. On one hand, you know, you know what it means to be duplicitous? On one hand, you act compassionate, but then behind that person's back, you talk about that person. You're murdering that person. You're murdering their character. You're murdering their reputation. We like to do that. We like to make caricatures of people. To make them out, you take that, you know what a caricature is? A caricature is a drawing where you take one physical flaw in that person and then you augment it, right? Almost cartoonish. That's what we like to do about people's characters. We like to make caricatures of them in such a way that we augment that one flaw that they have in their character and they're defined by that flaw. We like to do that. We like to destroy them. It's murder. And uh, it's, it's because we're acting with a sense of superiority over that person because of their flaw, because of their weaknesses. And friends, we all know, every one of us, weak. Every one of us are flawed. The reason why we act superior is because we feel inferior. And so what we do is we look for people who are weaker than us. In some way, maybe it's moral, right? Maybe it's uh, because of some sort of gift or talent. In Schindler's List, there's a movie that came out in the 90s. It won Best Picture that year. Schindler's List is a true story about how one German man saved an entire company of Jewish workers uh, during Nazi-occupied Poland. And a tremendous story. He fraternizes with German officers. He bribes them. Whatever he can do to fulfill his agenda, that's what he does. And there's this one poignant scene in the movie between Oskar Schindler, that's the character played by Liam Neeson, and uh, Amon Goethe, it's uh, Ray Fiennes, uh, Voldemort, right? That's, that's who plays that role. Uh, and they're, they're, in this, uh, they're in this interchange uh, together. And Schindler says, he says, power is when we have every justification to kill, and we don't. You think that's power? So Schindler says, that's what the emperor said. A man steals something. He's brought in before the emperor. He throws himself down on the ground. He begs for his life. He knows he's going to die. And the emperor pardons him. This worthless man, he lets him go. Goethe responds, I think you're drunk. You know why? We throw stones because we love to compare ourselves with weaker people. That's why we throw stones. That's why we do that. And it's because we love to destroy reputations. We love to execute them because our egos are constantly starving. The Bible says we need, our egos are starving, and so we're constantly trying to feed our ego. And you know what you need to do? You need to starve your ego. 
Your egos are always hungry. You need to starve. You need to get rid of that superiority. Look at Jesus. He knows. Objectively, he's superior. He knows. But what does he do with it? He lowers himself. Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me. I am gentle and lowly of heart. That means you can starve your ego. That means you can kill your ego. On one hand, the gospel gives you complete assurance, tremendous certainty in life. So you don't have to prove yourself because you know, you absolutely know where you stand. But on the other hand, it gets rid of cowardice. It gets rid of fear. You're no longer afraid of what other people think about you. And when you don't need to prove yourself and you're not afraid of people, there's a tremendous courage. So on one hand, there's tremendous humility, tremendous courage, tremendous confidence. And that confidence makes you a gentle person. It makes you a patient person like the patience of Christ. Look at the patience of Christ. Tremendous power and superiority and yet he lowers himself. That's humility. The second point about the character of Christ is his poise. In verse 6, they challenge him. They try to trap him. But look at Jesus. What does he do? Does he get defensive? Does he get in approach mode where he's going to answer? No. You know what he does? He just gets down and he starts writing on the ground. Why? It's almost like he's bored. He's like writing on the ground. Why? Commentators for throughout history have been trying to figure out what it was that Jesus was writing on the ground. And the reality is, we don't really know. We have no idea what he says. We have no idea what he was writing. Probably wasn't that important, but it does teach us this. One, this story happened. It's real. In the ancient fictional genre, you never included mundane details that had nothing to do with the actual action of the plot line. In ancient uh, historical, if you read the Epic of Gilgamesh, if you read these ancient documents, it's all action-packed, and you only included details that helped further the action, the plot. You would never include mundane details that had nothing to do with the plot line. Why does John write like this? It's because John isn't writing fiction. He's writing news. He's writing, it's an eyewitness account. He's writing history. The second thing we see is, look at Jesus. He's poised, completely unruffled. These, it's a life-and-death situation. What does he do? He just gets down and starts writing on the ground. What does that mean? On one hand, Jesus is incredibly meek. Yes, he's lowly of heart, he says. He's gentle and lowly of heart. But that meekness should never be confused with weakness. In fact, he demonstrates tremendous poise, tremendous courage. On one hand, Jesus is incredibly powerful. Incredibly powerful. He holds life, the life of this woman in his hands. He holds judgment for life or death in his hands. On the other hand, tremendously self-controlled. Incredible power. And yet, he voluntarily submits himself. That is meekness. That is real humility. On one hand, tremendously patient. But there's a poise and a courage. He doesn't get ruffled under tremendous critical circumstances. There's a poise and a courage that's underlying that gentleness, underlying that patience, you see. Never mistake Jesus' meekness for his weakness. He's gentle in his meekness, but he's also tremendously powerful in his meekness. In fact, he's gentle because he's powerful. In the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, you have Joseph. Joseph has been in prison for years he was actually accused of a crime that he did not commit, and he was thrown into prison, and those prison, the prison system then 
is it makes our prison system look like a vacation spot, right? He was thrown in prison for years. There was no concept of how long he was going to be there. It was indefinite. And he finally has the opportunity to be free. He's taken out of prison. He's taken to the Pharaoh, and he's asked to interpret this dream. Now, if you've been in prison, let's say anywhere between several years and, you know, over a decade, and you know that if you say the right things, you could finally come out of prison, Joseph, Joseph, knowing that, what does he do? He interprets that dream with accuracy. And you know what he basically says? I'm going to just kind of paraphrase what he's saying. Mainly what he's saying is, you are doing a terrible job as king. And if you continue this way, this country is going to go bankrupt. It's going to go to ruin. He doesn't mince his words. And, And he says, you know what? I have a plan for you. He doesn't mince his words. He speaks truth. Why? He's not afraid. Prison life has humbled him. Prison life has humbled him, but what it did was it brought him tremendous poise, tremendous courage. Daniel, later on in the Old Testament, as you continue to read Daniel, the prophet Daniel, he faces the most powerful ruler, the most powerful ruler in the world to date. And you know what he tells the king? You know what he tells the king there, the emperor? Your kingdom is falling to ruin, and your days are numbered. He doesn't mince his words. Tremendously respectful on one hand, humble on one hand, but tremendous poise and courage. Moses, in the book of Numbers, chapter 12, you have Moses. Moses was regarded as the most humble man in all the earth. He approaches Pharaoh, the most powerful king in his world to date, the most powerful empire in the world to date, And what does Moses say? I want you to overturn your armies. I want you to surrender and let the weakest people among you, these slaves, I want you to let them go. That's basically what he says. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Tremendously poised, tremendously calm. Life and death situation. Unrattled. Completely poised. Incredible power. Incredible self-control. He chooses to be low. In fact, Revelation 5, uh, John also wrote Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 5, he writes, in his vision, behold the lion of Judah. And so John looks, and there is a lamb. Basically, he hears, behold the lion of Judah. He looks, and there is a lamb. And the lamb is not just an ordinary lamb. The lamb looks as if he's been slain. He's all beat up and messed up. So the question is, is he a lion or is he a lamb? And that's the point. Some people, when they look to Jesus, they see a lion. Tremendous power. Other people, they look to Jesus. They see a lamb. Tremendous gentleness. In other words, he's both. And if you're anything like Jesus, you will become both. Poised and confident on one hand. Suffering and unrattled. Tremendously poised. And yet patient, patient and gentle on the other. Jesus, he could have smited these teachers of the law. He could have smited this woman. And yet, what does he say? Verse 7, he says this. Let him who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Now, when you hear that, I, I presume what you're thinking is this. What Jesus is saying is, only a sinless person, somebody who's without sin, has the authority, authority to execute this woman. All of you are sinners, so stop judging. And as a result, these teachers of the law are so convicted deeply, they all go away. That's impossible. There's no way that could have happened. 
the Pharisees would never have agreed with that kind of logic. And if you think about it, you wouldn't agree with that kind of logic either. And the reason is this. Think about this. If that is true, if what Jesus is saying is true, that only a sinless person has the authority to execute, then even Hitler, even a serial killer, any wrongdoer can get away with it. Nobody should be in jail. Think about that. Nobody should be punished for anything that they've done. So that's terrible logic. He's doing away with justice altogether in that case. What's going on here? What Jesus is doing is he's actually quoting the law because these Pharisees and teachers of the law are coming to him with the law. So he responds with the law. In Deuteronomy, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, in, chapter, in two places actually in Deuteronomy, we read that if you are a witness, the witness must initiate the execution. If you're a witness to a capital crime, you have to initiate the execution. In other words, if you think about this, the execution, the person who's the executioner cannot be guilty of the same crime. Another way of saying that in this context is you can't be an adulterer if you want to convict somebody of adultery. And Jesus knows some of these men, they're adulterers. Deep within, deep inside them, they're adulterers. He knows that. And what we see here is on one hand, uh, what he's saying is if, you know, I know you, I see you, you are adulterers, but it's really possible that some of them helped set this situation up. In fact, it's very possible that some of them, one of them uh, could have been a participant in this episode, in this narrative. Now, the law says, remember, you have to catch the person in the act. You have to see somebody in the act committing the act of adultery. And what Jesus is saying is this, I see you because I am the ultimate witness. I see and I know all of you. You are not innocent. Just because you think you got away with it doesn't mean you got away with it. Just because you've gotten away with it in front of one another, it doesn't mean you've gotten away with it. He's convicting them. You know why? Because there's this double standard. Jesus knows there's this double standard with women here. Because in the law, that same law that says that you execute somebody committing adultery, that same law says that both the man and the woman are to be executed. But where's the man? The man was never presented. So Jesus knows either they saw the act and they only caught the woman to set her up because women had no rights, easier to go without defense, right? Uh, So this woman would be exposed and humiliated, and that was okay in those days. This woman had no defense. That was okay in those days. Or this was really a conspiracy. She was set up, or one of them was the man, you see? And they were lying. They were false witnesses either way. They were all punishable. They were part of the crime, and that makes them criminal. Jesus says, yes, I honor the law. Of course I honor the law. But what about your adultery? What about your conspiracy? Because I know, because I see. What about the fact that you are false witnesses? You are false witnesses. What about your deception? What about your duplicity? You live double lives. I'm taking away your right to be witnesses because all of you are guilty. On one hand, he never says, he never says, don't you dare throw a stone at her. He never says that, right? He acknowledges, Jesus never denies the need for punishment, but he says, you are adulterous and you're doing this because your egos are starving. 
And as a result, you're willing to deceive and you're willing to kill and you're willing to destroy people. You're willing to step all over them. You're willing to beat them up, beat them up socially. You're willing to humiliate them. You're willing to make a tool out of somebody, a helpless person, to feed your inferior egos rather than facing your own sin. And in verse 9, that's why they're cut to the heart. And so they begin. The oldest ones first is kind of a patriarchal society. The oldest ones walk away first, and so the youngest ones have no power. They walk away as a result, right? Look at the self-control of Jesus. Look at the wisdom of Jesus. Look at the poise of Jesus. Look at the honor of Jesus. He honors the law. Look at the compassion of Jesus at the same time. And that's the last point, his pardon. Now he turns to the woman. Verse 9. Most likely she committed the act. Absolutely she was caught in the act. So she's naked. She's humiliated. She's hurting. She's crying. They let the man go. And so she's helpless and she's alone. That's us. That's the Bible's way of showing us that's us. We're exposed. We're naked. We're guilty. We deserve condemnation. But then verse 10, Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Now think about this. What he should say is either you are guilty and condemned or you are not guilty and not condemned. That's what judges do, right? You are either guilty and so you deserve to die or you are not guilty and you deserve to live. Either it's the law on one hand, or there's freedom, there's grace on the other hand. But look at here. He says, on one hand, you are guilty. And yet he says, you are not condemned. There you see in Jesus the perfect embodiment and the perfect execution of law and grace. And this is the key. Here is Jesus who is in the position to either trample on the law or to trample on grace because you can't uphold both, right? But what he does here, how do you uphold both? How do you uphold both law and grace? How do you uphold judgment and mercy at the same time, right? Because Jesus, he's in the position to either trample on one or the other. And yet, despite his gentleness, despite his patience, despite his compassion, He doesn't just let the woman go. He doesn't say, okay, I know that this is traumatic for you. Uh, You've suffered enough. They're just bullies over there. Uh, It doesn't matter what they think, right? Because you're okay. We all know you're okay. I'm okay. Let's just go. I let you go. That's not what he says. What he says is, on one hand, don't you dare blame other people for what's happened here. I was set up. There's a conspiracy. It's not my fault. Don't you dare blame somebody else. Don't you dare consider yourself the victim here. Don't you dare blame those people, those religious people. That's the real trap. When you blame the circumstance, when you blame, you know, um, your circumstances, or you blame somebody else, or you overlook your own sin, it's not that bad, right? How was this woman changed? How was this woman changed? Because Jesus says, all right, we're going to let this one slide. I'm going to turn the other way. Is that, why, is that how she was changed? No. It's because she gets it. 
She gets it. Here's this woman, exposed, broken, convicted, and it's all true. You you notice she doesn't even try to defend herself. It's all true. She doesn't try to explain herself away. She doesn't try to excuse herself from this. She doesn't try to blame somebody else. She doesn't try to run away. And that's how she gets it. She takes it. She knows. She understands her guilt. She rece- she's ready to receive it. She accepts it. And yet, she's pardoned. You know the hymn? One of my favorite hymns. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear pleasure to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new excuses I see. Morning by morning, new people I can blame. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. If you're living with deep-rooted sin, we all live with deep-rooted sin. If you're living with indwelling sin, if you live with a damaged ego, if you've ever been rejected in your life, if you've ever been humiliated in your life, if you've ever been hurt by others, if you've ever been hurt in the church, these were religious people, don't blame them. Stop running. What did the woman see? She is standing before the one man who knows. She's standing before the one man who sees. She's standing before the ultimate witness to everything she's ever done. And he has the power to execute. He could have smited everybody, including her, but they all went away. And what he asked was this, has no one condemned you, woman? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Except Jesus. He stayed. Can you imagine the fear of this woman? I mean, for a while, it's looking pretty good. Oldest men walking away one by one. Youngest guys follow. And everyone's gone. And Jesus is there. On one hand, you look at the gentleness and the patience of Jesus. He says, the neither do I condemn you. On the other hand, look at the authority of Jesus. Does he say, go then and live the life that you were living? Is that what he says? Go then because you're okay? No, that's not what he says. He says, go, leave your life of sin. What he's saying is, yes, what you did you're in sin. He sees the woman. Jesus is without sin. Not just those sins, but sin with a capital S. He's without sin. In other words, Jesus is the only one with the right to cast the stone because not only does he see it all, he is completely sinless. But does he throw a stone at her? Does he cast her out? No, he doesn't. And yet at the same time, he doesn't say, ah, let's forget this whole thing. Forget about the law. Let's forget this whole thing. We're just going to let this thing go away. You don't talk about it. I won't talk about it. It'll just die out. That's not what he says. That's not what happens. 
You see, your apology, the crying, the shame, it's not enough. The debt is real. Someone has to pay that debt. It has to be paid. Somebody must pay. You ask me, why? Why couldn't Jesus just let this woman go? Think about this. And I've said this before. If you've ever truly been wronged in your life, I imagine at this point, all of us at some point in some way have been hurt by somebody we care about. Go ahead. Just forgive them. In fact, tell them tomorrow, I let you go. You're good. Can you? You can't. If you're a human being, you can't. You know why? Because there's this debt. This person now owes you a debt, and they have to pay. Somebody has to pay. And so you have one of two options. Either they have to swallow your judgment, they have to swallow your pain, and that's why we do gossip, that's why we murder, that's why we murder reputations, right? Or you have to say, forget about it. And you know what happens when you say forget about it? You're swallowing that pain. You're swallowing the judgment that that person deserved. So who swallows the pain in this narrative? Who's actually getting the stone here in this narrative? This woman deserves stones, so who's getting the stone? Later on, if you actually read this chapter, later on in chapter 8, they actually pick up the stones to accuse Jesus. That's what happens. Not because of his sin, but because he's sinless. That's why they do that. Jesus will be judged. Jesus will be condemned. They're going to roll a massive boulder over his tomb. So Jesus is thinking at another level with this woman. He's thinking about, as he's speaking with this woman, he's talking about his death. He's talking about the cross because Jesus will get the stone. Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus will be condemned. Jesus will face the boulder of God's wrath. Jesus will face the boulder of God's judgment. John chapter 19, you see another trial. Pontius Pilate says to the Jews, I find no basis for a charge against Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is, I've examined, I've looked into this. Jesus is innocent. But what do the people say? Crucify, crucify. This woman, she's guilty. This woman, she's condemned. She's naked. She's alone. She's rejected. But Jesus Christ, totally innocent. And yet, he is stripped naked. He is put on a cross. He is condemned, not only by man, but he is totally alone because he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he's saying there is, I have been judged I have been cut off. I am facing the ultimate rejection from the one man who sees. My God sees that I am totally righteous. And yet, he has turned his face from me. He has forsaken me. And now, I'm condemned. And I am totally alone. And I have no defense. No one will come to my defense. No one will see me in my rejection. I will be crushed by the pelting wrath of God. And I am alone. And as a result, Paul says, you, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what religion is? Religion is this. You are either guilty or you're not guilty. And so you're either condemned or you're not condemned. And as a result, we're working. We're constantly working to build our reputations up, right? Because if there's even a slight mark, the, slight, the slightest bit of judgment, that just ruins our ego. So what do we do? That's why we step all over people. That's why we're constantly pelting stones at people. We're pelting people with our stones, our gossip stones, our judgment stones. We're constantly doing that. But Christianity says, you are guilty. You are guilty. 
but you are definitely not condemned because Jesus Christ has taken on that condemnation for you. Jesus Christ is saying, I'm going to take the hit. The stone will be rolled over my grave so that you will have the ultimate advocate. I had no advocate. No one came to my defense. Why? So that you would have the ultimate advocate, the ultimate defense. When Jesus Christ cries out, it is finished, what he means here, that word, that phrase, that word in Greek, tetelestai, is actually a financial term. It's actually a transactional term, meaning the debt that was owed has been paid. Somebody must pay. Jesus Christ says, I've paid it once and for all. You take all of your sin, everything you've ever committed, everything you will ever commit, it's been rolled up into the death of Christ, and that stone has been sealed. It has rolled over his grave to take care of your sin once and for all. And God is just. God is just. He will not make you pay twice for the same sin. Jesus Christ already paid the debt. And that's why when he comes to God as the ultimate judge, he doesn't go before God and say, as your advocate, he doesn't sit there and say, Lord, I love these people. Please save them. Please, please, you love me and I love these people. Will you please redeem them? Will you please have mercy on them? That's not what he, when we say that Jesus is our high priest, we read that in our, in our prayer of confession today in the Huddleberg Catechism, he is our high priest. That's not what he means by being our advocate. What he's saying is, Father, I am not appealing to you on the basis of your mercy because you are merciful and I'm asking for mercy, but I'm not appealing to you on the basis of your compassion or your love. I have already paid the price for the debt that they owed. And if you are just, you would never make them pay again. That would be unjust. If you owed somebody money and you already paid them back and they come to you and say, you still owe me, that's unjust. And God is ultimate justice. He is ultimately just. So Jesus doesn't say, I'm appealing to you on on the basis of your love and your compassion, although he is loving and he is compassionate. He's saying, I'm appealing to you on the basis of your justice because the debt is paid once and for all. It's been paid. And do you notice that while he's on the cross, he's never rattled. He's still poised. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's talking to the criminal. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Not once does he lose hope. Not once does he lose patience. Not once does he lack compassion or love. Even as he is bleeding and dying on the cross, he's still forgiving, still gracious, still patient, still poised. Look at the self-control of Christ. This is the key to your patience. A lot of us here are not patient. The reason why I know that is you're high achievers. Most of you are very high achievers. That means that you have to put up with a lot You have to work very, very hard to get to where you are. And you're going to continue to work very, very hard to get to where you're going to be. That means that you have to demonstrate a tremendous amount of will, a lot of hard work to get where you are, to get where you're going. So you're not going to be very patient at times. right? You're going to be filled with anxiety at times. You're going to get rattled at times. What happens when you're accused? What happens when your reputation is challenged? What happens when your gifts or your talents are challenged? What happens when you're on trial? 
Do you demonstrate patience and poise? You see, this woman did nothing to earn rescue. Christianity is we, did, we can do nothing to earn rescue. Jesus Christ got everything you deserved. And we receive everything that he deserved. That should make you humble. On one hand, that makes us tremendously humble. It makes us tremendously submissive. But Jesus Christ embraces you. He loves. He died gladly. He wasn't like reluctant. He died gladly for you. And he says, sin no more. What he's saying is now you have the power. You have the freedom to be exactly what you were designed to be. You have that kind of freedom in your life. You have that kind of power in your life. So stop sinning. That should give you tremendous poise, tremendous strength, tremendous courage. You become a person with humility on one hand and a person with power on the other hand. You become meek. In a horse race, you ever watch the Kentucky Derby? I haven't. I admit, I, I don't watch that stuff, okay? I don't. It's boring to me, okay? But one thing I know about horses is they are very, very powerful. Very powerful. And yet, they say, the one that wins the race is the meekest horse in the race. You know why? Because not, he takes that power and he has tremendous self-control and he's submissive. Those jockeys are like, what, like 90 pounds or something like that? They're really scrawny people, right? And yet, these horses channel their power appropriately. That's how you become a person with humility and power, when you recognize the humility and power of Christ. Remember, Jesus says, he doesn't say, uh, go, sin no more, and then you won't be condemned. That would be religion, right? That's religion. He says, you're not condemned. So in response, go, sin no more. Now you have power to be what you were designed to be. If people are hurling stones at you, you can take heart. Because the only stone that can kill you has already struck Jesus. You see, that means those things can be used to strengthen you, humble you and strengthen you at the same time. Do you see that? Will you plunge your guilt, your shame, into the patient love and power of Jesus Christ? Will you trust in his righteousness and his work and let the power of Christ shape you in a way to make you humble, make you compassionate, and yet poised and courageous. How did it shape her? Everyone's gone. It's just her and Jesus. On one hand, that means she's naked. Jesus saw her all the way, knew her sin fully, and yet loved her. He says, you are not condemned. That means I'm taking my life, and I'm going to put it on the line and sacrifice. Your life was risked, my life will be cost. You see that? Right? When you see somebody naked, that means you're intimate with that person. Jesus desires to know you intimately. Will you pray? Will you read your scripture, your Bible? Will you engage in the context of community to know him more? That's how you become more intimate with God. Will you open up about your sin? Don't just talk about work at community group. Okay, that's what makes a bad community group. That's what makes a boring community group, all right? Don't be boring. Talk about the things that are deep-rooted. Share about your life. Tremendous risk. It only happens in the context of gospel grace. Second, this woman, she sees a just God. No one can stand in front of this God, right, before this God. She realizes 
She needs to pursue righteousness. Go and sin no more. But she sees a gracious God, a God that sees me fully, knows me fully, and loves me fully. That kind of love leads to tremendous joy, tremendous confidence, and as a result, tremendous obedience. Okay? The third thing is don't throw stones at other people. Don't throw stones. Quit your gossip. Be honest with people. Stop mincing your words. Do you realize every single time you mince your words when you're trying to tell truth to somebody, right, you're actually being dishonest, that it does not reflect the power and the poise of Christ. Will you be honest about your circumstances? Be honest about yourself. Don't be dishonest. In a community group setting, in a church setting, you don't have to put up a resume. God looks right through that resume. You are still naked before him. Do you recognize that? Be honest. Kill your anger. Kill your pride. Kill your ego. Do you get that? What that also means is when you're confronted with sin, when you're conf- I don't care if it's the youngest person in this room talking to the oldest person. Wait, that's me. <laughs> right? Talking to the oldest person in this room. You can receive it. You can receive it. Even if they're wrong, you can receive it with grace. Can you do that? It takes a tremendous amount of poise and self-control to be able to do that. Don't throw stones. Talk to the people directly. How do you know that this woman was changed? Who is the eyewitness in this story? Everyone's gone. Was there someone hiding behind a rock? It was the woman. The woman told the story. That's how it was written down. That's how you know she was changed. This is her testimony. You see that? That means if you're bruised, if you're broken, if you've been beaten up, trust me, I understand. Do you know that three-quarters of pastors are betrayed and accused by a close friend? Do you know that? Three out of every four pastors you meet. There are three pastors in this room right now. That's what that means. Do you see that? Stop throwing stones at one another. All right? Look to Jesus. He sees you. He is the ultimate judge. Stop blaming other people and acting like a victim, okay? Are you guilty? Go to him. Are you ashamed? Go to him. Are you proud? Let it go. Stop feeding the ego. Go to him. See Jesus on the cross for the whole world to see his humiliation and his shame for you and let that shape your life once and for all will you do that let's pray